This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. George and I will be speaking with you this evening, and it really is my great pleasure to introduce uh, George Beatty. George is an uh, associate professor of medicine at UCSF uh, at San Francisco General in the HIV AIDS division, where he's been on faculty since 1998. Uh, George has worked extensively in the field, both here in the United States as well as in sub-Saharan Africa, training healthcare providers and assisting HIV treatment programs in the implementation of antiretroviral treatment programs and the development of clinical algorithms. He's been a consultant to the African Ministries of Health and U.S. NGO organizations. Um, he has a particular interest and experience in the management of patients with multidrug-resistant HIV, as well as viral hepatitis in the developing world, and the use of uh, remote uh, training uh, uh, modalities to help improve uh, training for resource-limited settings. He collaborates, in addition, uh, with the UCSF Transplant Service on the management of HIV-infected recipients of solid organ transplants and the use of novel therapies in this population. Um, George is an exceptional HIV clinician um, and a fantastic teacher, and really looking forward to his talk this evening. Thank, thank you, Annie. Um, and good evening. I um, see a few familiar faces up there, so good to see you guys. I, Monica asked me to do this talk, and I um, asked her the uh, level of sophistication of the audience, and um, I think I didn't listen to her answer because I'm told that you're quite sophisticated. And um, so I apologize in advance if I'm speaking uh, over your head or more likely under your feet. Um, we can sort of beef it up during the question and answer session if, um, if this is uh, too basic for you. Um, so... I was asked to oops, just be, tell you what antiretroviral therapy does. Um, so in the few minutes we have, I'll go over just a couple principles. Um, just describing the therapeutic effects of antiretroviral therapy, which we abbreviate as um, ART, um, to point out some of the deficiencies of therapy, what these therapies do not do, uh, what we would like them to do. Um, and then go into a little bit of detail about the different classes of um, HIV medications um, and spend a little bit of time on mechanisms of action. That's always fun for me because I'm mostly a clinical researcher and clinician, so going back to my uh, basic science and pharmacology is, is fun and, um, and, and humbling. Um, and then um, touch, if we have time, on uh, the topic of viral resistance, which is our most vexing uh, challenge in implementing antiretroviral therapy, at least in this country. So I know you've seen this before, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page with the clinical uh, markers, what we follow in patients uh, with HIV is, of course, the HIV viral load and the CD4 positive lymphocyte count. Um, the old analogy, beaten uh, like a dead horse, but still, I think, helpful is that the CD4 count tells us how close we are to falling off the cliff, and the viral load is the speed with which we're um, heading to that end uh, if they're infected. So what does... Um, what do we, Antiretrovirals do. It's quite simple, actually. They um, they keep people alive, and um, they do this uh, through a number of different mechanisms. Um, antiretroviral therapy reduces overall mortality uh, in an HIV-infected patient, and does this through um, principally through a restoration of loss adaptive immunity, um, pathogen-specific immunity that's been lost in the course of uh, of infection, and um, prevents further loss of adaptive immunity in those people who we catch early enough. 
Um, and in so doing, it reduces the risk of opportunistic, both within CD4 strata um, and reduces the risk by increasing patient CD4 counts so that they're no longer vulnerable for, um, at risk for um, the different OIs. And I, I, I say this to mean that um, a patient who has an undetectable viral load in a CD4 count of 150 uh, is not at the same risk of pneumocystis, for example, as a patient who is uh, not suppressed uh, and has a CD4 count of 150. So there's an independent uh, reduction in the risk of opportunistic infections uh, by virtue of viral suppression, which is uh, poorly quantified because, of course, it's hard to separate out from the immune restoration. Um, but nevertheless, it does, and, of course, it does so by suppressing replication in plasma. Um, it also in so doing reduces but doesn't completely normalize the chronic inflammatory state, the chronic immune activated state that characterizes HIV infection, which is the subject of a lot of uh, research and um, interesting developments uh, of late uh, and uh, the source of most of the current morbidity and even mortality that we uh, see in treated patients uh, in this era. Um, We don't completely normalize that, but we do help it by suppressing viral replication. It also ameliorates the generalized sort of hypersensitivity state that clinically goes along with this chronic inflammatory uh, uh, situation uh, and uh, reverses some HIV-related autoimmune diseases that can occur because of the dysregulation of the lack of having the CD4 lymphocytes uh, functioning as the effective general in the field, as it were, um, so that the immune system is uh, sort of in a chronic turned-on state, B cells churning out nonspecific antibody, for example, that can deposit on platelet cell mem- platelet membranes and cause them to be taken up in the spleen and destroyed. So-called idiopathic uh, or HIV-associated thrombocytopenia um, is an example of one of these autoimmune uh, phenomenon that um, responds very quickly to viral suppression. And um, in addition, uh, we've known for many years, actually, since the very early days of therapy, that um, putting people on antiretroviral therapy, even when we couldn't suppress completely viral load, can reduce some of the um, neurocognitive deficits um, and the, the dementia that we see uh, with uh, advanced HIV disease. And repair or at least improve some of the neurologic damage, uh, for example, neuropathy that can be seen with uh, chronic HIV infection. We do a better job um, with antiretroviral therapy in terms of reducing uh, infectious complications in general uh, than we do with improving or repairing the deficits in the tumor surveillance function of the immune system, such that we are able to reduce significantly the risk of the so-called AIDS-defining cancers, um, but we don't completely uh, normalize that risk. And we've learned in the era of potent therapy now that people are living longer, uh, that patients who are also at risk at a, of a number of, at higher risk of a number of um, non-needs-defining cancers, um, uh, Hodgkin's disease, melanoma, lung cancers, uh, several different head and neck cancers. Um, so that is also improved, um, but again, it's not completely normalized by uh, antiretroviral therapy induced viral suppression. Uh, from a sort of practical clinical standpoint, um, being suppressed uh, improves patients' uh, sense of well-being. It can have a profound psychological uh, benefit, um, but improves some of the malaise and fatigue and just generalized um, uh, discomfort that patients report. In the prevention realm, uh, retroviral drugs uh, reduce, dramatically reduce the risk of transmission of pregnant women to their fetus 
and intrapartum and in, during breastfeeding. Um, so we reduce risk of mother-to-child transmission. We don't completely elim eliminate it. Uh, and a lot of, uh, I think you may have had a talk already on either pre- or post-exposure prophylaxis. So as you know, we can prevent HIV infection uh, in exposed patients both uh, prior to their exposure and after their exposure uh, if we do it uh, right and in the right time frame. And finally, uh, sort of at a population level, uh, we reduce the infectiousness of, uh, of patients when their viral load is undetectable. There's been some controversy around uh, how effective that is, but it is quite effective, uh, but it probably isn't yet safe to say from a policy standpoint that people who are suppressed are uh, n completely uninfectious, uh, at least for their sexual partners. So that's a lot of things. Uh, we're quite grateful. Um, they, of course, don't come without a cost. Um, the antiretroviral drugs from the early days got a significant, um, significant and deserved bad rap for uh, being fairly uh, intolerable. Um, we've had a lot of improvements in the tolerability of these drugs in the last decade, and, um, but they still uh, do have a number of toxicities. Um, some one class of drug in particular uh, can cause a fair amount of GI intolerance, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, many of them can cause fatigue, which can be mild or can be severe. Headaches, hypersensitivity reactions to some of our drugs do occur. Some of these are fatal. One of the drugs in particular causes some a dissociative neurologic state that's kind of like a buzz. Um, some patients actually sell it on the street. Um, and um, many of them have significant hepatotoxicity, and some have some nephrotoxicity. Um, in, this, in this era, these are seldom treatment limiting, at least in the patients who are not co-infected with viral hepatitis, but they can be. Um, one of them causes some bone demineralization, which uh, is uh, an issue for pediatric use in particular. Um, and there is some teratogenicity of some of our compounds, at least in animal studies. Um, many of them have uh, drug interactions that can become quite complex as we um, begin to try to treat, as Annie will talk about, hepatitis C and other comorbid conditions. Some of the uh, protease inhibitors, some um, older versions of, this, of these drugs um, had a significant uh, impact in a small number of patients in increasing insulin resistance, um, decreasing the range of insulin sensitivity uh, that could precipitate diabetes. Uh, and uh, some of them also can increase serum lipids, uh, compounding the cardiovascular risk that is already attendant with HIV infection alone. Um, some of the drugs have had... Uh, have been implicated in some studies, but not all, at increasing cardiovascular risk themselves. And this is an area that's been somewhat, somewhat controversial um, and unresolved, but people hear about it, patients hear about it a lot and ask about it. Um, I would suffice to say that if there is some cardiovascular, uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease uh, from some of the HIV medications, I would hazard to say that's outweighed by the cardiovascular benefit of, of viral suppression. And then um, many of our older drugs in a particular class, the nucleosides, cause some uh, a constellation of toxicities by virtue of the poisoning of a couple of the enzymes in the oxidative metabolism uh, uh, chain in, the, um, in, in mitochondria. And this mitochondrial toxicity, mitotox for short, uh, has a number of clinical manifestations. And one of the most common ones is a peripheral, painful peripheral neuropathy that patients can get. 
um, but they can also have some uh, hepatic uh, steatosis, hepatic failure, lactic acidosis, and a number of things. So we have um, had to navigate a number of toxicities over the years, um, but that is really uh, with the number of drugs we have available, the drug companies uh, have to bring us agents that are um, tolerable and with minimal long-term toxicities if they are going to make any money anymore. So that's, that's been improving. So what do these drugs not do? And this is actually some ways more interesting. It's sort of where the field is right now in terms of funding and, and, um, and progress. We don't completely um, normalize mortality, as I mentioned, uh, for a number of reasons. And we don't completely reverse the risk of malignancies. We don't re- eliminate all the risk of transmission, and we don't normalize levels of immune activation. Um, we don't eliminate the excess cardiovascular mortality that is probably uh, caused by this immune activation and chronic inflammation. And I, I th- are they getting a? I, I hope you're getting a talk from Steve Deeks about the eradication efforts. Um, ask him about immune activation and chronic inflammation as well. He's a world leader in that field, and. Um, We've had fun fighting with him in clinic. One of the problems with this whole area of research is that the, um, the markers of immune activation, chronic inflammation, that are clinically relevant are still being defined. So we are quite a ways from being able to make an impact clinically uh, on this process, in part because we don't know what to measure and we don't know what correlates with clinical outcome. There are a few markers like soluble CD14 and IL-6 D-dimers that uh, have been linked to some of the uh, morbidity endpoints, but uh, we really don't know what to measure. The, um, this immune activation also causes increased rates in general of end-organ uh, toxicity uh, and in-organ disease and failure, and such that uh, uh, with the combination of viral hepatitis, uh, liver failure, and end-stage liver disease is a leading cause of death now in people with HIV who are uh, having non-AIDS-related deaths. Uh, at least in, the, in Europe now, I think it is the number one cause of death. Um, and um, the, uh, the impact on neurocognitive deficits, again, uh, possibly related to the immune-activated state, uh, is incomplete. We've well-documented now um, more, much more subtle neurocognitive deficits that occur in people with advancing age, long-term infection, despite years of viral suppression. And probably most importantly and most interestingly, um, we have yet to reduce the size of the latent viral reservoir in people. There have been a number of clinical trials um, of both antiretroviral agents and, and other things to try to uh, intensify therapy. And while some of those studies have shown a reduction in viral load from the levels of the clinically used assays to much smaller levels um, on, uh, as measured with ultra-sensitive assays. The measures, uh, to the extent we can do them, of the latent reservoir have not been impacted by these efforts. And so we, have really, we really are, need something else to get to the reservoir. And it's a, a whole fascinating area of research where various studies speak just very in the infancy stage, really, of looking at ways of purging the reservoir in combination with antiretroviral agents to try to sort of, I sound like George Bush, wash him out and kill him. But, <laughs> but um, that's sort of the strategy. And, of course, the, um, the holy grail is bioeradication, and um, we are still quite a ways from that.
So in, in a few minutes, I uh, just want to sort of go over what happens uh, virologically when, when we do begin treatment in patients. As you probably well know, when someone becomes infected, um, initially an acute infection, the viral load goes to the roof, can be hundreds, several hundreds of thousands, even in the millions of copies. Um, it then, uh, at the same time, CD4 count takes a little plunge. It then rebounds as there is a sort of steady state of war established between the immune system and the virus. And the immune system is able to contain the virus at certain levels. And this viral set point, which people arrive at sometime around six months after acute infection, uh, uh, is influenced by a number of uh, viral and host factors, probably primarily host factors, and can range from anywhere from uh, undetectable levels, and so-called elite suppressors who maintain undetectable viral loads without therapy, to the hundreds of thousands. And this viral load set point is one of the principal, not sole, but principal determinants of the rate of decline uh, in the untreated patient of CD4 lymphocyte count, such that uh, over the course of their illness and without treatment, CD4 count, of course, declines to, to nothing. And finally, at these late stages of disease, the lymphoid architecture breaks down, massive amounts of virus uh, is present in the plasma, and this is uh, basically impending death. Um, so hopefully we don't see that as much anymore, uh, at least not here. When we begin treatment uh, in a patient, um, a viral load undergoes a, a classic biphasic decay, um, uh, decreasing quite dramatically in the first uh, few weeks of therapy. Uh, this is followed by a second, more slow, gradual decline in viral load until the uh, serum viral load should be undetectable Generally at three months, three to six months in, in some patients with very high baseline viral loads, but with currently uh, available potent compounds, majority of patients will be undetectable by three months. And um, the, uh, the rate of viral decay uh, early on can be predictive of that, but we do like to see at least a, a log decay. As you know, we measure viral load on a logarithmic scale. I think you may have gotten some of that already. Um, but we like to see at least a one log, um, really closer to a two log uh, decline by the first four weeks of therapy. And then the CD4 count um, improves. We see um, analogous to the uh, viral load decay curve, the uh, uh, re initial recovery of CD4 uh, lymphocytes uh, is a biphasic uh, phenomenon. You get a, a nice bump uh, in the first few months uh, that is then followed by a slower steady uh, in increase in CD4 cells. Um, I often show this bump to patients to try to enforce the adherence, knowing that I'm lying a little bit because this initial sort of demarginalization or clonal expansion of existing uh, immunity probably isn't giving them a lot of benefit. It's really this slower uh, phase increase in naive T-cells that is giving them the immunity back that they may have lost uh, over the subsequent months of therapy and years of therapy. And the majority of patients treated will actually get CD4 counts back to the normal range, which is 600-ish or more, depending on your lab. Um, but not all, not all patients do, um, particularly older patients, patients who have natured very low and have been there longer, um, sometimes can have incomplete immune recovery. Um, some of this is thought to be related to the uh, sort of burning out and involution of the thymus that happens with age. 
Um, but there is a subpopulation of people who don't get the full immune restoration, but they still have uh, significant improvement in their risk of infections just from, by virtue of being uh, suppressed. So to shift gears a little bit, um, the, uh, the classes of antiretroviral drugs sort of evolved over the years. There's a huge uh, number of drugs in the mid-20s that we have available. Uh, we don't use all of them that often. But there are six main classes that are clinically uh, available. There are some others in development. And the principle of therapy, uh, really, it's like a Chinese menu. Um, the, uh, a potent suppressive regimen generally consists of a single uh, sort of cornerstone uh, drug, which is of a very potent class, and, uh, and then backed up by two uh, drugs in another class that are of, of generally a little bit lesser potency. Um, so that the cornerstone regimens are their non we'll go through these classes uh, briefly, are the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, um, protease inhibitors, and our integrase inhibitors um, are the most commonly used back, uh, cornerstone uh, of regimens. These are the hard hitters. They're a very potent antiviral uh, effect, um, but they need some backup, and that's generally the combination of two nucleoside analogs. Um, these are the uh, recommended preferred regimens, but you can see that we get into sort of a, a, a swamp of, of, of possible combinations of therapy that we can use um, uh, if we need to uh, go further than first line or if there are limiting toxicities or resistance, et cetera. Um, so I, don't, I think people have gotten some basic viral life cycle um, so this will be then very quick, um, but I'd just like to review it briefly to, because it helps, helps us um, come on visualize where these drugs are acting. Auto-visually challenged. So the process, of course, begins with viral attachment. The CD4 lymphocyte would be purple, the uh, virus is in red. And as the virus approaches the, the lymphocyte uh, surface, uh, it encounters a couple different molecules. This is the CD4. Uh, and these are called chemokine co-receptor molecules. The virus has two proteins on the surface that are involved in this process. The GP120, glycoprotein 120, and then the transmembrane GP41 protein. These uh, then... CP41 initially makes attachment with the CD4 molecule, and then once that occurs, an absolute requisite second step is the attachment of GP120 to the uh, chemokine co-receptors. There are two types of these uh, that the virus can use, which we'll talk about briefly. Once this happens, it allows a conformational change and unfolding of the GP41 molecule so that it makes this sort of penetrates the cell, and then the, um, the molecule sort of folds in on itself and facilitates the fusion of the viral and cell membranes. And the result, of course, is that the core capsid enters the cell, breaks apart, our two strands of viral RNA are present, and the three principal enzymes that the virus uses, which are integrase, protease, and reverse transcriptase. Reverse transcriptase then takes the lead, of course, by 
very slowly, it appears. Um, taking the RNA template, synthesizing the first DNA chain, which is then cleaved and in the second round, reverse transcriptase forms the double helix, which becomes then proviral DNA. Integrase now steps in, does some preparatory work by clipping off a dinucleotide pair at the three prime end of this, uh, this proviral DNA, transporting the proviral DNA into the nucleus of the cell, and then facilitating a cut in the host cell genome and a transfer of these strands. This is called strand transfer into the host cell genome so that the HIV genome now resides in the host cell genome and upon activation of the cell, this um, genomic material is transcribed. The messenger RNA then leaves the nucleus out to the cytoplasm to be... Um, Annie's laughing at my... Thanks. <laughs> um, cellular machinery uh, does transcribes these, uh, these viral protein uh, precursors are formed, and then the HIV protease, um, also an essential uh, uh, player, must cleave these uh, proteins in certain ways so that they can become, uh, their end product become functional. And then the whole thing reconfigures itself. The three enzymes, the two strands uh, come, and the viral capsid is formed. This is, of course, an oversimplification. Um, and as the capsid uh, buds out through the cell membrane, it acquires its own membrane and some both viral and host uh, proteins on the surface, and you've got a new virus. So that's how the evil little thing uh, lives, and this is how we attack it at different stages of this life cycle. So the um, classes of drugs that we currently are able to use, um, the first, the earliest one is, uh, earliest one in the viral life cycle, not the earliest in development, is an antagonist of the CCR5 molecule, and that uh, blocks the attachment of the GP120 with, uh, with CCR5. We then have a molecule that actually can block the, clog up the fusion complex and prevent the viral fusion. Um, our oldest uh, class of drugs, of course, uh, include the nucleoside reverse transcriptase and the non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, and these uh, block reverse transcription. Um, a newer and, and um, very potent class of compounds uh, interferes with the integration into the uh, host cell DNA. And finally, at a later stage, uh, the protease inhibitors, of which we have several, uh, inhibit the uh, protease uh, enzyme from doing its job in cleaving and processing the uh, viral protein precursors. So to start with uh, co-receptor binding, the CCR5 antagonist, um, this is just a little schema that's in your syllabus, um, is an interesting, the CCR5 story is quite interesting. I'll take a couple minutes to just talk about it because it's, it's a fascinating story. It was discovered... Um, several years ago that there is a group of, of people who are essentially immune, at least to sexual infection, uh, with HIV. And these individuals um, are homozygous for a mutation that causes a, an absence of CCR5 on their cell membranes. They really they go through life with no CCR5. And so the virus uh, that is sexually transmitted for reasons that aren't completely clear is almost universally CCR5 tropic. The virus can actually attached to either CCR5 or a second co-receptor molecule called, uh, co-receptor called CXCR4. 
the virus that's sexually transmitted is CCR5 universally, and so um, the uh, so it's a very important uh, step in in um, it was an important physical finding because if you can imagine the drug companies um, had found uh, we have the human knockout model for this drug, so it was uh, you know it was a very exciting discovery. The um, individuals who are heterozygous for the uh, Delta 32 mutation that causes an absence of, CD4, of CCR5 have CCR5 but at lower levels, and these patients do become infected but at lower rates, and if they are infected, they progress more slowly. Um, it's unknown why this uh, mutation is, um, has been maintained in the population. There are several theories. Some of them are, are fairly interesting. If you look at the, it's about 1% of Caucasians are homozygous. Um, and if you look at sort of the geographic map of this, um, uh, of the prevalence, uh, it's very high, it's highest over northern Europe and the UK, and then sort of decreases in prevalence as you spread south and, and east across Europe. And it's been uh, hypothesized, one of several hypotheses, that this uh, map looks very close to the uh, map of the plague in the 1300s, and in fact, CCR5 does have a role in the pathophysiology of plague, so whether plague survivors selected for this, we don't know, but it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a cool story. Um, but at any rate, it gave us a great drug trot, uh, target. Um, the, one of the problems with this drug target, though, is I said that the, the virus can uh, utilize the second co-receptor, CXCR4, and while the virus, once just after infection, is almost universally CCR5-tropic, as time progresses, um, in ways that we don't, and for reasons that we don't completely understand, uh, there is an increasing prevalence of virus that uses the CXCR4 co-receptor, or uses both, so-called dual or mixed tropic virus, such that as you see, as CD4 counts get down into the very low, low ranges, um, about half of patients will be able to use, uh, patients' viruses will be CXCO4 or dual tropic. Uh, and in these patients, this drug has no uh, antiviral effect whatsoever. The virus just simply uses the other receptor. Um, another class of drugs is our fusion inhibitors. I'm going to go fairly quickly. Uh, this is, uh, we have a single drug that's available here. It's not widely used because it's an injection, uh, subcutaneous injection that has a fair amount of toxicity. Um, I'm going to skip the cartoons in the interest of time. But it essentially, when that um, hairpin uh, conformation change occurs in GP41, the uh, infubertide, or T20 is the name of the drug, the compound more or less sort of gets in the way and mucks it up. The, it, it can't close, and the, um, the fusion complex can't form, and fusion is aborted. Um, the um, oldest classes of drugs, the nucleosides and non-nucleosides, um, again, inhibit reverse transcription. They do so in uh, two different mechanisms. The nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors are obviously nucleosides. And um, what they are are basically fake-out um, nucleosides as the um, uh, reverse transcriptase is trying to elongate the DNA chain by adding dinucleotides. The um, uh, It is, encounters a basically fake nucleotide this is the uh, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitor with a triphosphate end. It lacks this hydroxyl group that um, is the sticky point, if you will, for further elongation of the chain. So when it uh, mistakenly puts this, uh, this nucleoside on the chain, it can't add another one. So it's a chain terminator. 
Um, the reverse transcriptase is kind of a dumb. It's a very sloppy enzyme. It makes a lot of mistakes, and it can't correct itself when it does. So that's fortunate, unless you get viral resistance, and then it can. The non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors simply bind the uh, reverse transcriptase enzyme somewhere else that cause a conformational change so that it can no longer bind the nucleosides. And they're a quite potent class of drugs. The um, most exciting uh, class of drugs and the one that put our clinical trials unit almost out of business was the uh, integrase inhibitors. And this has been a um, uh, target that's been hard to hit. It has been looked looked for for a long time. Integration is actually a multi-step process. Um, there's an assembly of a stable pre-integration complex after the reverse transcription. Um, there's a processing function I mentioned, and then the strand transfer. And this is where our, um, our drugs act. The uh, integrase inhibitors prohibit very potently uh, the ability of integrase to uh, join the proviral DNA into the host genome. And um, this is these more cartoons in your syllabus. And the, uh, the effect of this is, is, is quite profound. One of the things integrase inhibitors have done is challenge our models of viral decay, because I told you I showed you the two-phase viral decay uh, curves. That is the classic thing we've seen. But in the integrase inhibitor-treated patients, um, many patients have a single steep viral plummet and go undetectable um, quite quickly. And so it's, um, we're not quite sure why. Um, this is sort of the, the, the clinical trial correlate of that viral decay curve. It's compared, this is one of the earlier uh, clinical trials of raltegravir, one of the leading compounds in that class, um, that shows the uh, proportion of patients undetectable over time compared to one of the gold standards, which is the, uh, one of our non-nucleosides, ephabrins. And uh, this is seen as a class-effective integrase. These patients get undetectable uh, at significantly and statistically significantly higher rates than with the other drugs. Whether that means anything clinically is yet to be determined. And finally, um, one of our largest classes of drugs are the HIV protease inhibitors. And these basically, um, as I said, they uh, bind protease, uh, cause some conformational changes, and uh, prohibit the uh, enzyme from doing its cleaving function. Um, the, we started a little late, so I'm not sure how much time I need to leave Dr. Luca Meyer. But I wanted to bring up just one um, last uh, concept, because it's, it's important clinically, and that is the concept of viral resistance. Um, we choose these drugs based on a whole different, uh, a number of different characteristics, uh, including their potency and their toxicity, their tolerability, ease of dosing, um, cost in some, some states. And um, one of the uh, key characteristics of a drug is what we call the genetic barrier. And the genetic barrier simply refers to the number of mutations the virus has to get to be able to replicate in the presence of that drug. And um, this is a characteristic of a drug. Um, there are some trends in, in, uh, in the classes. Ones with very high genetic barriers are boosted protease inhibitors. Um, some of the other ones are quite low. Even though they may be quite potent compounds, they may have a low genetic barrier. And um, let's look at this in a little more detail. One of the ways this plays out clinically is we um, uh, patients have to take all their drugs, or they do not work. And um, this is the uh, the implications of the uh, the massive viral turnover that occurs uh, in a replicating patient, and the probability of 
mutations arising that can confer resistance, such that a patient who is taking less than 95% of the drugs is already at risk of failure. And when you're down in the 90%, I don't know if, if how many people have to take drugs regularly, but it's actually pretty hard. I had to take some antibiotics last week, and I couldn't complete them. There were pills at the end of the... I, <laughs> but, you know, so I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. But really, when you're down in the even missing 10% of your doses, um, here 70, these are from various clinical trials uh, uh, compiled, but um, really, um, you know, your quarter of patients or more are, are not suppressing. So you really do have to, um, to take all the pills. Um, and this is because the, um, uh, the, the sloppy replication of HIV causes multiple, multiple mutations at any given time. Um, this is dependent on the viral load, um, but when you have viral loads in the 30,000 range, for example, um, you can expect a drug-resistant mutation to be occurring at least once uh, every day. And um, just by chance, some of, these drug re- some of these mutations that just occur naturally will change the binding site of a given drug. And um, if you have inadequate drug levels in, in, in plasma, allowing for some partial viral replication, uh, then those naturally occurring mutations will then be, of course, be selected for um, and eventually will um, outgrow the uh, what we call wild-type or drug-sensitive virus because that is being uh, suppressed by the drugs. But you'll have an outgrowth of drug-resistant virus and uh, immunologic and virologic failure and clinical failure. Um, so the, another way to sort of think about the uh, genetic barrier is... Um, the, uh, there, I think of the, the mutations as steps along the way towards viral replication. So uh, a drug with a very high, uh, that, that can be quite potent, can uh, nevertheless be uh, compromised by the fact that a single mutations uh, change the uh, IC50, the ability of the virus to replicate uh, quite a lot. This is the case with our non-nucleosides. It is the case, unfortunately, with the integrase inhibitors that are currently in use. Um, in contrast, our protease inhibitors have, uh, most of them have a characteristic of having a uh, large number of mutations required before the virus can replicate, because each mutation only confers a small advantage to the virus in ability to replicate. Um, I think that I'm into your time. So I will... Um, uh, we do want to leave some time for some questions. So um, just to summarize, um, we can restore health, we can restore longevity, um, but we don't bring people quite to a normal lifespan with viral suppression. We don't reverse all the mortality, and we don't reverse all the morbidity. We do re- reduce transmission substantially and uh, risk of infection and expose individuals, and uh, we do so at the cost of decreasing toxicity, frankly, in these days. Um, our efficacy, though, is limited um, by the vexing problem of drug resistance, and um, we have yet to significantly impact the latent reservoir, purge the reservoir, or make uh, any sort of clinically meaningful steps towards viral eradication yet. Now, Steve Deeks may con- contradict me in a couple weeks, but that would be welcome, actually. You may be asking yourself right now, why am I, as an HIV doctor, talking about hepatitis C, and what do these two things even have to do with each other? And I think, as you'll see in this talk, they have a lot more to do with each other than you might 
um, think most importantly about a third of HIV-infected patients in the U.S. have hepatitis C, um, and it's become really a leading cause of morbidity and mortality in our patient population. So we're getting a lot of experience treating these patients as HIV doctors, um, and I think the similarities between the treatments are beginning to emerge, as you'll hear with the uh, uh, different classes of medicines I'm going to talk about tonight. So I have some disclosures. I do active research in the area of hepatitis C, so these are research grant supports to UCSF. The goals that I want to go over um, this evening are to really talk about the very exciting changing paradigms in hepatitis C treatment um, that is ongoing with the availability of new hepatitis C agents, both the ones that we can now get because they're FDA approved and the really enormous pipeline that is um, uh, in development right now through clinical trials. And I can say, um, unlike many um, fields, this is literally a field that changes day by day. Um, I was putting together these slides, um, and I'd given a talk in December, and I thought, oh, I am, I'm hopelessly out of date. And uh, I think that that's a really exciting uh, statement that the hepatitis field is moving so fast, um, but it can also be pretty challenging to keep up with um, for those of us who are caring for patients and trying to make these decisions. And it raises the really important question, what do we do now at this moment in time? And how do we look into our crystal ball and imagine what will be different so that we can answer the question, should I treat you now versus should I treat you in a year because I can imagine what will be coming down the pike? And that's what I want to walk you through a little bit today is some crystal ball gazing because it's an exciting time. Um, and uh, I think some of the challenges that we all have to make as either hepatitis C patients or with loved ones who have hepatitis C or those who are just interested in this field about how to think about treatment now um, and, and how this field is really going to change. So why is this important? Um, Hepatitis C in the U.S., you see the numbers differ widely, but I think that um, some have estimated even up to 4 to 5 million people are infected. I think quite distressingly, 80% um, of those who are infected don't know it. So 4 out of 5 people living with hepatitis C in the U.S. don't know it. That's our number one problem here. If people don't know they have hepatitis, um, we can't begin to provide them with good care and certainly can't begin to treat them. So there's an enormous push to identify people um, with hepatitis C uh, in the U.S., 75% of the infections occur in baby boomers, which those born in 1945 to 1965. And the reason that hepatitis C matters is that um, in this population that is aging, hepatitis C is really beginning to take its toll. We're seeing advanced liver disease, cirrhosis. This has become one of the leading causes of transplantation in the United States. And we see hepatitis C-related mortality rising. In 2007, it had the dubious honor of surpassing HIV in terms of total mortality cost. I think we're um, doing a good job of uh, working to control mortality in, in, in HIV, but I think we need to do a much better job in preventing um, these really, I would argue, preventable deaths and morbidity in hepatitis C. So part of the problem, and I'm going to get into this much more, is that the old standard of care, um, interferon and ribavirin, um, really has been very difficult and challenging. Um, and uh, we're going to get into these details a whole lot more, but just to give you a snapshot, um, there's two different, uh, there many different flavors of hepatitis C, but we tend to break them into genotype 1, the most common genotype in the United States and also the hardest to treat, and then everything else, but most commonly genotype 2 to 3, which is a little bit easier to treat. 
and giving 12 months of interferon and ribavirin. Interferon is an injectable drug that has to be given every week and is basically a mild form of chemotherapy along with a pill. You treat someone for 12 months and they don't have HIV disease, they have a 50-50 chance of being cured. Uh, in HIV disease, this goes down to about 25%. So it's a pretty tough sell when I tell people, look, you can do everything right, have a ton of side effects, and after a year, you know, one in four people will be cured. People don't like that, and I had one person tell me, there's no way this is FDA approved. You're just, you know, they, they must be crazy that they're out letting people take these medicines. But this is all that we have had, and some people do attain a cure, and we've gotten a lot smarter about how to manage the side effects. Oops, it gets a little bit better um, in people who have genotype 2, 3. You can give a shorter course of therapy and get slightly higher cure rates, but the side effects are substantial. And I'm not going to go into a laundry list, but this really is a um, can be a difficult to tolerate therapy, and there are a number of contraindications. People who already have very advanced liver disease um, and have had what we call decompensation, meaning that their liver has shown signs of not being able to function, they have a lot of fluid accumulated in the belly, which is called ascites, have had bleeding related to liver uh, decompensation, or have had the liver function so poorly that they've become confused, we really are hesitant to give these medications because they can make these people do much worse. Interferon can also cause a great deal of depression. So people who have a history of depression that's very uh, severe, um, we worry about giving them interferon because it's been associated with suicidality. Um, sounding better and better, right? I'm doing a really good sell. Believe it or not, I treat a lot of people with interferon, and they can do very, very well, but it's a tough therapy. So the paradigm now is really, really changing, in part because of the new medications that we have, and I want to spend some time um, focusing on that today, but also because of the way that we've been thinking about hepatitis C, and I want to start here. So the old paradigm was that hepatitis C is about the liver, right? Duh. It starts with hepatitis. That's what it affects. If it gets out of control, you get liver scarring, and, and you can have liver failure. But much like HIV, where I think for a long time we only focused on the immunologic consequences of HIV, HIV, if you have a bad disease, leads to infections, we've come to realize that HIV and hepatitis C are systemic viral infections that affect all parts of the body. Hepatitis resides and hurts the liver, but there's increasing evidence that neurocognitive effects um, can be associated with hepatitis C infection, potentially increased rates of some malignancies, and accelerated vascular disease, much as we see in HIV disease, where inflammation throughout the body leads to heart problems, liver problems, and kidney problems, which I think in the beginning stages of the epidemic really weren't recognized. So we've really seen that hepatitis C is a systemic disease. I think raising the bar for treating people, and it's not just all about the liver. We used to think that you only had to have advanced fibrosis um, in order to really affect mortality, and now we've understood that um, there's an increased hepatitis C-associated mortality, even with what are considered traditionally moderate um, amounts of fibrosis. So, for example, on one scale where we say zero is no fibrosis and four is cirrhosis, the worst you can get, we've seen a, almost a doubling in mortality rates in people who have a stage two. So the idea that it's, it's okay and no problem at all to wait until someone has cirrhosis before we treat them um, or even we can, can wait in the moderate stages of disease has really begun to be challenged and I think raises the bar for us to consider treating people early. 
as I've told you, interferon-based treatment is long. It's poorly tolerated. And I would say even, you know, 50% is a pretty low cure rate for what you're going through. Um, we're now at the start of um, uh, or solidly getting into a hepatitis C drug revolution. Better tolerated drugs, shortened therapy, and higher cure rates. And I think all three of these together um, have really helped us to change the fact that you know, when I started treating hepatitis C patients, um, very, very few people actually got to the time of us giving them interferon. It was really considered the exception. Um, and I remember um, uh, one of my patients being admitted for some treatment complications and the resident, admitted resident saying to me, why on earth are you treating this patient with, for hepatitis C? Like, a, like this was crazy. And he said, everybody else in this hospital has hepatitis C and they're not being treated, so this must be wrong. I said, well, well, it's that I'm treating the patient. I thought, well, maybe it's wrong that we're not treating all these patients. But I think now we really are moving to this being not the exception, um, but that a hepatitis C treatment, um, we should at least start considering this in everyone and, and uh, understanding what the barriers are um, to therapy. So before I go any further, as you can tell, hepatitis C is a very jargon-heavy um, field. Um, and so I provided a glossary that's in your slide, so feel free to use this for reference. But I want to go through it. I will try not to use too many abbreviations. But I think this is helpful for those of you who may read some of the literature. And even um, you know, the New York Times can be a little bit overwhelming here. So they chose perhaps unfortunately, the term direct-acting agent for these new non-interferon-containing um, uh, uh, medications. And they're direct-acting because they actually, just as George had described, go right to the hepatitis C viral uh, mechanism of replication. So they're abbreviated DAS, directly-acting agents. Um, could have maybe come up with something catchier if they'd asked me. PEG stands for pegylated interferon, and that's really the backbone of our current treatment, and that's as opposed to standard interferon, which was a different kind of formulation. Ribavirin is also often abbreviated RBV, and that's one of the really mainstay medications that we give with interferon. You'll see this often in the literature, abbreviated P and R, and so in some of the slides you'll see P and R, and that stands for pegylated interferon and ribavirin. The hepatitis C genotype is really important in understanding what kind of hepatitis C and what the response to therapy will be. So there's six hepatitis C genotypes worldwide. In the U.S., it's most commonly one, two, three, and four. Um, but the way to, that I think about that is the geno one is the hardest to treat, and that represents 70% of patients in the U.S. Four is a lot like one, um, and two and three are often lumped together and are generally considered easier to treat. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, not, not, a, not a piece of cake, and that some agents are very specific to which genotype they act against. So that's another consideration here. Um, some agents are called pan-genotypic. In other words, they work against one through six, and others are just genotype-specific, so something to keep in mind. IL-28B is a human gene that we've begun to understand in the last um, few years, and this is a gene that can come in a couple of different types. So some people have a type, the CC type, that predisposes them to doing well with interferon-based therapy, um, and it ranges then to people who have TT, um, so two different alleles, that predisposes them to doing poorly with interferon therapy. This doesn't explain the whole response uh, to interferon, but is one of the nuances that I think we've come to understand. I think there still is some relevance to IL-28B in the interferon sparing um, regimens, and we're really trying to understand that. Uh, so you'll see some references to IL-28B along the way. 
The second page of the glossary, so SVR, that's a sustained virologic response. And what that means is what happens when you stop hepatitis C therapy and give people months um, off of treatment and then check a hepatitis C viral load. Traditionally, we refer to an SVR 24. If someone has an undetectable hepatitis C viral load at 24 weeks, they're cured. Um, and that's with interferon and ribavirin-based therapy. We know that. We follow these patients for a very long time. It's a cure. So take that, Steve Deeks, right, George? Um, and uh, we're trying very, very hard to, uh, to cure HIV, but um, we at this point have not gotten there. Hepatitis C, we can tell people with confidence that we have cured them. We're moving back a little bit to SVR12s, which are pretty close to SVR24s. It doesn't capture everyone, but just be aware if you look in the literature. I just got back from a meeting where they're reporting SVR4s, and sometimes people reporting end-of-treatment therapy. You need to know the numbers that you lo- you're looking at, and really, I think, for purists, an SVR24 at this point is the most important. Whether that's true for these directly acting um, combinations or we need to follow people maybe a little bit longer if there's late relapses remains to be seen. So I think that's an area of active investigation. Many people have been treated previously with interferon and ribavirin and haven't gotten a um, cure, in which case it's important to know when we're thinking about retreating them what kind of a failure they had on interferon and ribavirin because that's a very, very important predictor of how they will do on both interferon-containing and interferon-sparing regimens. So people who fail within the first 12 weeks, in other words, their hepatitis C viral load doesn't come down enough, are called null responders, and these are often the group that's the hardest to treat down the road. Um, There are people who get suppressed and then rebound. Those are called partial responders. And then people who get fully suppressed through the end of therapy, but in that window um, while you uh, have stopped therapy, uh, when you check an SVR24, they have, they have relapsed, and those are called relapsers, and those are the easiest to treat. So it's not enough to know that someone has failed therapy. You need to know how, they, how they, their virologic response was. We're beginning to get a lot smarter about how much medicine we give to people. Um, We call this response-guided therapy, and we now know that people who respond very well and briskly to the initial treatment can be given a shorter course of therapy many, many times. And this is called response-guided therapy. So we try to identify factors that will allow us to treat people for a shorter period of time. Um, And so that will be important in understanding uh, 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 some of the applications of these these, um, combinations. So that's just the glossary. Um, I want to then jump into uh, a life cycle here, and I apologize that it's not a beautiful video like the kind that George showed you, um, but now that he has prepped you, I think you can imagine what it looks like. Um, This is a hepatocyte, um, and hepatitis C is an RNA virus um, that comes into the cell, but unlike uh, HIV, HIV needs to be reverse transcribed into DNA, and that's where it um, becomes active in terms of making new uh, uh, new HIV virions, and that's one of the reasons why HIV can hang around in a latent state because it integrates itself into the host genome. Hepatitis C does not do that, and that's one of the reasons why it's easier to cure because we don't believe that it has this long latent form that persists. Hepatitis C is constantly replicating, and that's why we can try to shut it down and cure it with these viral agents. So hepatitis C comes in, it's a positive-stranded RNA, single-stranded, and then it basically hijacks the endoplasmic reticulum, which is kind of the workhorse of the cellular mechanism of the host cell, and it inserts these uh, uh, replicating uh, mechanisms into the endoplasmic reticulum that we're going to focus in on in the next slide 
um, makes negative stranded RNA that then gets transcribed back into positive stranded RNA, and then you have uh, hepatitis C that can uh, go on and infect other cells, and it continues to do this. So if we focus in on these um, colored blurbs here, and again, I highlight that this is a cartoon. Um, it's to give us the idea of how these things work. Um, these sort of line up in the endoplasmic reticulum and make the factory to turn the positive RNA into the negative RNA transcripts that then get turned back into positive RNA. And this is where the action is, and this is why these are called directly acting agents, because they finally target the exact mechanism that is um, churning out hepatitis C, as opposed to interferon and ribavirin, which truthfully, we don't really know how these work. Uh, we do some hand-waving about you know, downregulation and antiviral effect, but we give interferon and ribavirin for other viral infections, and we're not exactly sure the mechanism that is targeted, and it's not specific in any way to hepatitis C. So when we start with the first class of medications that came out, these are called the protease inhibitors. And you're going to notice that a lot of the nomenclature is very similar to the HIV nomenclature that George used, but it, they're not the same type of medications at all. So I would, I would uh, turn that, that part of the, the talk off in your brain. It, they're similar mechanisms, but they have very different qualities um, to these uh, medications. Um, but but uh, I think this causes some confusion, especially when people are treating HIV and hepatitis C at the same time. So the protease inhibitors target, they're also called NS3 uh, inhibitors, uh, target the protease that clips the RNA as it comes through. These are two of the first FDA-approved new DA agents. They were called bosepravir and telaprevir. So those are available on the market to be given with interferon and ribavirin. And I think this was really the first big step forward, and I'm going to talk about what these medications have done to the field. There are many, many, many others that are coming out. Bisepravir and telaprevir are uh, specific to genotype 1. Many of the subsequent protease inhibitors in development are pan-genotype. So NS5A inhibitors are another class that has generated a lot of excitement, a lot of numbers here, but decladosphere is one of those, and we'll talk about this in a bit. Then there are the nukes and the non-nukes, and again, this is very similar to the HIV uh, discussion that George gave you. The nukes act directly um, to terminate the RNA transcription, whereas the non-nukes act at an allosteric site to sort of shut down the enzyme, but don't actually terminate the chain. And the nukes, um, one of the ones that has gotten uh, a lot of press uh, for being far along in development is called cefospavir. Um, and of the non-nukes, they make it harder and harder Tegabuvir, Cetrobuvir, um, and you'll see a, a lot of other ones coming down. Um, but they're trying to, I think, keep the buvir as the uh, as the the indication that this is in the nuke class. Um, Additional classes that are not pictured here are entry inhibitors and cyclophyllin inhibitors. I think one of the um, tenets of treating viral infections is that when you have more targets, you do better. And I think that was one of the enormous advances in HIV treatment when we had the drug cocktail, is that we moved beyond only having nukes to treat people. We didn't just give them AZT monotherapy anymore or dual therapy with AZT and lamivudine. We were able to fully suppress viral replication viral replication because we were acting at many different points along the way. And I think that's really going to be key with hepatitis C in terms of moving away from interferon is that not only do we have new one new class, we have multiple new classes that act at different points along the way, and that's what's causing a lot of the excitement. So 
What about the interferon-sparing regimens? I want to give you now a snapshot of the current state of drug development. And I think for me, this feels a lot like trying to drink as this boy is out of a fire hydrant that's just blasting him in the face. It's, it's exciting. It's refreshing. Um, but it also feels like a whole lot. So my goal for you when we walk through this is not to focus on the numbers um, of the drugs and, and, and the combinations here, but really the big concepts of what happens when we give three drugs, two drugs, one drug with just ribavirin. How good does this look and what are the cure rates? Um, and really keep it in the big picture. Those of you who are really excited about the details, I've provided them in the slides and I'm happy to talk about those more. Um, but I think at this point, the, the big picture concepts, um, I, I think, are what I'd like to highlight. So before we jump into that, I just want to say that interferon, as much as we're looking forward to getting it, getting rid of it, still really may have an important role to play. So um, this is uh, uh, some data looking at cefospavir, okay, so interferon ribavirin and a polymerase inhibitor, giving it for 12 weeks. So this is cutting treatment basically um, in a quarter, right? So standard therapy is 48 weeks for genotype 1 disease. Remember, you always have to know the genotype you're treating. When they gave it to people for 12 weeks with genotype 1, uh, the cure rate was 90%. So this is really enormous. Um, remember, if you treat people with interferon ribavirin alone for 48 weeks, you, treat about, you cure about half. This is curing almost all of them. The numbers are small here. Um, uh, there's 90%. This wasn't a large um, study, but the FDA approval for this agent that they're going for um, is actually going to be for cefospavir with pegylated interferon and ribavirin initially in genotype 1s. So we're not quite done with interferon and ribavirin yet. Also very exciting in the more orphan types of genotypes, genotype 4 and 6, you don't end up hearing a lot about. This is a pan-genotype uh, polymerase inhibitor that, if given with interferon and ribavirin, cured 80% of the genotype 4s and 82% of, uh, same, 82% of the genotype 6s. Um, so this is exciting to have um, agents that, uh, uh, that work well in these classes that are uh, the genotypes that are often neglected. They gave this for 24 weeks in, in these two genotypes, but still, right now, the standard of therapy, standard of care for genotype 4 would be 48 weeks. Notice, very small. This is 11 patients. You know, we never want to make huge statements about 11 patients, but I think a very good signal, and these are actively being reproduced in larger studies. So what happens if you take three of these new agents and give ribavirin, but don't give interferon, right? You're attacking the hepatitis C replication on multiple different fronts. And in this case, they used a protease inhibitor, an NS5A inhibitor, and one of the polymerase inhibitors, in this case, a non-nuke. What happens if you give these all together? Genotype 1 patients, you treat them for 12 weeks, you give them ribavirin, because I think increasingly we recognize that ribavirin still has a role to play you get a 97% cure rate after 12 weeks. And I think that this is really remarkable and has caught a lot of people's attention. Can you push the envelope? If 12 weeks is good, maybe eight weeks is better. They did see a drop-off here by about 10%, so only 87% of people got cured. Um, so I think in general with combinations like this, we're probably going to move forward with, with these three drugs. Uh, uh, but, but I think a lot remains to be seen. Everyone wants to push it further and further. But 12 weeks four drugs, three of them are DAS, um, and almost 100% cure rate. Very, very exciting. Well, 
Um, and then, so these were in people who are treatment-naive patients. Remember, if you've never been treated before, that's one of the easiest groups um, uh, to treat who have the best response. What about null responders? Remember, we discussed null responders are people who have been previously treated and had a lousy initial response, had to be stopped by the first 12 weeks because they just didn't respond well enough to interferon and ribavirin. Wow, these people had a 93% um, response rate um, with 12 weeks of therapy. So this is really enormous. Um, in contrast, uh, when we retreat people with interferon and ribavirin who had been previous null responsors, the response rates are very low, um, ranging from 5 to 10%. Um, so really a very poor response rate. And this is a, a very, very exciting uh, response rate in this very hard-to-treat class of patients. Um, so what if we break this down and look at the IL-28B-CC favorable genotype? And I apologize, the non-CC got cut off here a little bit. Um, how important is this? We think of IL-28B as mostly being driven by as an interferon sensitizing uh, uh, phenotype and that it allows people to respond better to interferon if they have the IL-28B-CC genotype. Sorry. Um, but interestingly, we see here when we, when we take a look, uh, the blue uh, bars here are the favorable genotype, and the purple bars are the non-favorable genotype, um, you see that there's still a signal here. It's not a big signal, but it does look like um, uh, uh, out here when people are treated for 12 weeks, and these are the null responders, that there is some role here to the uh, IL-28B uh, uh, genotype. So there still might be a role to play, and it suggests to me that we don't fully understand what the IL-28B phenotype is doing in terms of predicting treatment response. Um, so what if we take this one step further and remove an agent? So we have two oral agents um, given in addition with ribavirin, which is also an oral agent, but it's not a directly acting agent. Um, and here, this is a polymerase inhibitor, cefospavir, given with an NS5A inhibitor, decladosphere, so not including a protease inhibitor, um, and giving it to genotype 1 patients. Uh, they got 24 weeks of therapy, so a little bit longer. Um, look, look what happened to them. 100% were cured. Uh, this is SVR. 24. Again, small numbers. These are, you know, 15 in this arm, 14 in this arm. Um, but again, really good cure rates with 24 weeks of therapy. You may be reducing some toxicity by only giving them, you know, two of the new drugs plus ribavirin. I think this is very promising. Um, we don't know what would happen if they'd only given it to these patients for 12 months. How about in genotype 2 in, for 12 weeks? What about genotype 2, 3 patients? Remember, these are generally people who are easier to treat. In this group, they did give this combination, a three-drug combination with two DAWs for 12 weeks only. They got essentially, you know, upwards of uh, 85 to 90% cure rates um, at 24 weeks. So again, I think very, very promising data um, for a very small number of drugs uh, that do not include interferon. So what if you push the envelope even further and you give one drug, uh, one of these new agents, cefospavir in this case, and give ribavirin alone? Um, and I think that this has been really the most envelope pushing that's been done. They call this study electron, but uh, the number of arms that has come out of it, I, to, to call it one study seems uh, to be a bit much, because every time I go to a new conference, it's like, and now the new arms of electron, so it's kind of an ever-expanding study. So they started out with the easiest to treat patients here, uh, genotype 2s and 3s who had never been treated 
treated before. And in the top line, they said, okay, we're going to give them this new, this polymerase inhibitor, sofosbuvir, with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. I already showed you that in uh, uh, genotype 1 patients, people did great, right? So they gave it to them for 12 weeks, and in genotype 1s, as well as in 2, 3s, 100% of a sustained virologic response. They then pushed the envelope and said, well, maybe we'll give a little bit less interferon. They reduced the duration, 100% response. They got rid of interferon altogether, 100% response with 12 weeks of therapy. Then they got a little cocky and said, well, what if we just get rid of the uh, uh, ribavirin altogether? Maybe only one drug, 60% response. So clearly a little bit of ribavirin is doing something here. Great response rate, though, with two drugs, cefosbuvir and ribavirin, um, when given in uh, the treatment naives. Uh, what about in treatment experienced? Remember, a little bit harder if people have previously failed. Uh, 60% uh, of people were cured when they were given 12 weeks. So the efficacy starts to fall off when you get into harder, harder to treat groups here. And these were genotype 2, 3 treatment experienced. Okay. So uh, what about uh, then uh, null responders um, who are genotype 1, an even harder group to treat, right? Uh, so here you're seeing in the treatment-naive patients, they have an excellent response rate. Um, about 84% of people uh, were cured when given 20, uh, 12 weeks of, uh, of uh, this therapy. Null responders didn't do so well. 10% were cured. So you're starting to see some weaknesses and what looks like a very potent combination when it's given in the easier to treat groups starts to peter off a little bit in the genotype 1s, especially if they've been um, treated before, um, and the genotype 2, 3s if they've been treated before. So at the conference that I just came back from um, in Atlanta, which is the, the HIV conference that we have every year uh, called CROI, uh, they made an effort to expand then uh, and build a little bit more on this backbone of cefosbuvir ribavirin and added in back a, a, an a, a, another agent and said, well, maybe we've gone a little bit too far here for some of these hard-to-treat patients. What happens if we give two drugs and then the, the, an additional agent? Really remarkable results. So the HIV I mean, the uh, treatment naive, sorry, my HIV background sticks uh, sliding in there. These are all HIV uninfected patients, by the way. So hepatitis C, treatment naive patients given 12 weeks, 100% sustained virologic response. What about the null responders, one of the hardest groups to treat? They didn't uh, respond before, 100% SVR. Really, I think, very exciting data. Very small numbers, 25 people in this arm, 9 people in this arm. But again, I think a big signal that with the addition back of one more drug here, um, you're getting a really nice response in some of the harder-to-treat populations. So where does that leave us? Um, we think that, I think what I would summarize there is that an all-oral all interferon-sparing uh, treatment with cure rates of greater than 90% will be a reality. It's becoming a reality right now. Looks like 12 weeks is very reasonable to expect in genotype 2, 3 patients and somewhere between 12 to 24 weeks in genotype 1 patients, um, which I think is just really remarkable when we think about where we were several years ago. Ribavirin um, may still be a part of a lot of these regimens. Uh, there are regimens being evaluated that don't contain ribavirin, but it still clearly seems to have a role, and when we've tried to remove it um, from some groups, it has not uh, been successful. We still see a better response rate in genotype 2, 3s, and then there's somewhat of a subtype issue in the genotype 1 patients. I didn't show a lot of this data. Genotype 1A tends to be a little bit harder to cure than genotype 1B, particularly in the interferon sparing regimens. So not only is it important to know the genotype and the prior treatment response uh, when people are thinking about being treated, but also the subtype if they're genotype 1A or 1B. 
The IL-28B genotype, uh, which we thought only really probably applied to interferon responsiveness when you're giving someone interferon, may still play a role here. It'll be interesting to see how that all ends up playing out. So when will this happen? And I get asked this every day by my patients who say, you know, should I get treated now with interferon? Should I wait for this um, coming down the pike? And, um, you know, a lot of people have been told to wait for a really, really long time. Um, and there's still very active clinical trial development. Um, my understanding is that um, there's going to be an FDA filing for cefospivir, one of the polymerase inhibitors that I talked about. Um, and that's going to be one of, I think, the next agents to be approved for genotype 2, 3s sometime in 2013, and for genotype 1, sometime in 2014. So that's coming relatively soon, and I think that that's exciting. Remember, though, that some of the most potent data that I showed you for genotype 1s was the cefosbuvir ribavirin with a third agent. They needed to add something else on um, to really get good cure rates in the genotype 1s, including those who were null responders. Um, what about people who have HIV co-infection? Unfortunately, the case has been that they, these studies have really lagged behind. Um, I think there's been a lot of pressure and that we're starting to catch up, but we always have to consider what the drug-drug interactions are for people who are taking antiretroviral therapies, which is increasingly widespread, uh, which I think is a good thing. And unfortunately, with interferon and ribavirin-based therapy, we know that people with HIV just in general do worse. They get less good cure rates. Um, it's unclear with these agents if we will see the lag in response rates um, that we have seen with interferon-based therapy. The hope is that we won't, but I think we need to be sure how these regimens perform in HIV-positive uh, patients um, so that we really understand, do we need to give them two drugs, three drugs, four drugs, are there differential response rates? Because as you can see, there's a lot of subtlety here in terms of who is going to respond very beautifully and who needs a little bit more, uh, a little bit more treatment, either for a longer period of time or with more medications. So I want to just um, uh, wrap up with talking about the timing of hepatitis C treatment. Um, so we've talked about the fact that it is definitely coming. It looks very exciting. And how do we make these decisions about what to do now versus uh, uh, who to treat now versus who is the luxury of, of waiting till these better regimens come? And, you know, I think that it's safe to say that this is where we are, um, sort of in the cave, lighting the fire with the interferon-based therapy. Maybe this is me in, me in clinic now, and that the, this sound to me when I go to these uh, talks that this is the wave of the future when George Jetson's wife is just ordering up, you know, I'm going to cure your interferon, I'm going to cure your hepatitis C, and, you know, here's something for your blood pressure, and it'll be this easy in clinic, and I'll just give people one pill and they will move on. So we're somewhere in the middle, right? Um, it's hopefully getting a lot easier than this, and um, we're not quite uh, at the Judy Jetson stage. So let's just talk briefly about what it looks like with the current treatment options for both genotype 1 and non-genotype 1 patients. So I mentioned that telaprevir and bosepravir, the protease inhibitors, inhibitors are now um, FDA approved. So I wanted to walk through a little bit of the data of what this looks like right now when people are treated um, and then talk about some considerations for treating now versus waiting. So this is in people who've never been treated before and do not have HIV infection. And I would ask you just to focus on the red bar, which tells you what happens after, um, what the cure rates are after 48 weeks of therapy with interferon, 
ribavirin and 12 weeks of telaprevir, and that's what this means, T12 is 12 weeks of telaprevir, and then given with 48 weeks of uh, uh, pegylated interferon and ribavirin. This is only in genotype 1s, because remember, telaprevir only works in genotype 1s. Other protease inhibitors have a broader spectrum, but telaprevir cannot be used in non-genotype 1 patients. Remarkable response rates, 75%, and this is in comparison to a placebo arm uh, with that got a standard, I shouldn't say placebo, but it was a standard of care arm with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So almost doubled the response rate here. That's really remarkable. People have done very, very well. So I don't think it's at all an unreasonable thought uh, for patients wanting to be treated now to say, gosh, if I give you this, if you can get through the therapy, you have a three out of four chance of being cured. That's pretty darn good. How does this look in the HIV-infected population? Now, remember, with interferon-based therapy, people do about half as well. So if it's a 50% response rate in the HIV-uninfected uh, HIV world, we see about a 25% response rate in the HIV-co-infected world. Remarkably, when we've given HIV-infected patients um, to Laprevir in addition to their pegylated interferon ribavirin, this looks almost the same. So this was an HIV-infected study of genotype 1 patients with a 74% cure rate in comparison to a 45% uh, standard of care arm. Now, some have questioned, well, boy, that's an awfully good standard of care pegylated interferon ribavirin rate. You just told me that people with HIV don't do that well with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Well, Hopefully, we're getting better at it. Maybe some of the problems that we have are systemic problems. This is a clinical trial population that are selected uh, very, very carefully uh, for people who will do very well. I can tell you that observational studies have not shown rates this, this high in terms of uh, their response rates to pegylated interferon ribavirin. So some questions there, but certainly nice to see this 74% response rate. How about Bocepravir, another protease inhibitor that is now um, FDA-approved? The bottom line is that we're seeing very similar response rates uh, there when given in combination with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So 66% uh, cure rate, and this is in comparison to a 38% cure rate when given in uh, standard of care, uh, given, in, uh, given just uh pegylated interferon and ribavirin. Now, it's tempting to compare this. You go back to the other slide and say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't that mean that telaprevir is better? This slide says 66, and the other slide says 75. They're not being compared head-to-head. -head. And notice that the control arm here has a lower response rate as well. They enrolled different patients. They may have given them a slightly different standard of care, and they were different people who they were studying. Um, so I think that what we can conclude from this is that Bosepravir doubled the cure rates and Telaprevir doubled the cure rates, but not that Telaprevir is better than Bosepravir. I think we're all looking forward to head-to-head -head comparisons there, but to date those really are not available. How about when we give Bosepravir to the same population but with HIV infection, treatment-naive, genotype 1, hepatitis C, co-infected patients? We see virtually the same thing. 60% of patients were cured versus uh, what we would expect much more similar to other data in the HIV-infected field uh, if they got pegylated interferon and ribavirin, a 26% cure rate. So it's very exciting uh, for those of us treating HIV-infected patients to see that the addition of this third agent seems to mitigate the poor response that we generally have seen in the HIV co-infected field. These folks are having the same cure rates as HIV uninfected patients, and that's tremendously exciting. So what about in treatment experience patients? I'm not going to go through all the details in this slide. It's more just to kind of cast your eye over it and look. When you give telaprevir to treatment experienced patients, 
These are relapsers, partial responders, and nulls. So relapsers are the ones who generally do the best um, when you treat them with pegylated interferon and ribavirin. And you see here they did the best when they were given tilaprevir, 88% cure rate. This starts to fall off when people who are partial responders are treated and when null responders are treated. And look at that, only 5% of null responders who are retreated got a, a cure with pegylated interferon ribavirin. 33% um, got a cure uh, with tilaprevir retreatment. So that's one in three. It's not great, but it's a heck of a lot better than five. We really see similar, um, a similar trend here when we look at bisepravir in treatment experience patients. These are relapsers, partial responders. They've done the study now in Knowles. I didn't put it into this slide. But basically, there's a trend towards people doing very, very well with relapsers having almost equivalent response rates to people who've never been treated before. So how do you think about this when you think about genotype 1 patients? Um, what I counsel people is that you can expect about a 60 to 75% uh, SVR, which remember means a cure, um, a cure rate, with 48 weeks of pegylated interferon and uh, a hepatitis C protease inhibitor. And right now that's telaprevir and, and bosepravir. And that shortened response-guided therapy, and I didn't go into these data a whole lot, but that's possible in about 50% of patients. So I was saying that most of these people were getting 48 uh, weeks of therapy. But the truth is, in many of these studies, they only got 24 weeks of therapy. They had response-guided therapy based on an initial robust response. Um, so that is really quite promising, and thus far it looks like about 50% of people will qualify. I can't tell who they are up front, so I will tell people when they're starting treatment, look, you need to be prepared that this may need to be extended for you, um, but we will do our best to have you only be treated for six months. What about people who are treatment experienced and have gone through interferon and ribavirin in the past? As we talked about, it's really important to know what their prior type of viral response was so that they can understand what their risks um, and likelihood of being cured are. Relapsers in general do almost as well as people who are treatment naive. So this is a population that I think we can be very enthusiastic about treating now with uh, telaprevir or bosepravir with interferon and ribavirin. Uh, they seem to respond very, very well. Partial responders have a less good response rate, but now they're in the 50-50 category, which we used to think was really good, but now we think is uh, we can do a whole lot better. The SVR rate in the null responders, um, it's better than what we see with pegylated interferon and ribavirin, but it's still pretty darn low. And I think in light of the data that I showed you where when you give two DAA agents and, one, and ribavirin, almost all of those people, and in one study, all of them got cured. That's really good. Um, so it may be worth waiting for those individuals if they don't have a really strong reason to move forward, such as advanced liver disease, and, and, and they feel like uh, the clock is really ticking. So um, I would consider treating people now with an interferon-based regimen if, as I said, they have advanced uh, uh, fibrosis in their liver, either by imaging or by biopsy. They had prior treatment with interferons. So they know exactly what they're getting in, into, and they had a relapse or a prior non-response, um, so they're in a more favorable category. Or people who have no evidence of fibrosis but are really motivated to take interferon-based um, regimen and don't have any contraindications. And I have a gentleman that I started just today with for those reasons. We went through everything. He's only been infected for a few years, but he said, look, I don't want to live with this for one more day. This is really important to me, and I don't want to wait. And uh, I think that that's a very, very reasonable uh, 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 perspective to, to want to go forward. 
So I want to just close briefly in talking about the treatment options for non-genotype 1 patients because this gets a little bit uh, more complicated. We don't have a current DAA agent for these patients. Tilaprevir and bosepravir only work in genotype 1s. We have a lot of agents that are coming down the pike that will have more expanded genotypic activity, um, but for right now we're really stuck with pegylated interferon in ribavirin unless people participate in a clinical trial. So the good news is, is that the cure rates, the SVR rates in people who are genotype 2 and 3s um, uh, are upward of 80%. And I said 48 weeks here, and that's with HIV-infected patients. Uh, we treat them for 24 weeks if they're HIV-uninfected. So for six months to get an 80% cure rate is, is pretty darn good. Um, and the cure rates are slightly lower in HIV-co-infected patients. So I really offer pegylated interferon and ribavirin for genotype 2, 3 patients patients who are motivated, who understand the risks and the, the benefits of interferon-based therapy, and certainly those who have evidence of advanced disease, this is a very, very reasonable option to get them cured so that the, their liver disease does not progress. What about genotype 4s? We don't see a whole lot of these patients um, in the U.S., um, but it is a little bit challenging because, again, tilaprevir and bosepravir are not active in this population, and they're a little bit harder to treat. They're much closer to genotype 1s than they are to genotype 2, 3s. Um, their response rate overall is about 40 to 50%, um, and these are folks who, if they don't have advanced disease, it may make sense for them to wait um, because otherwise their, their response rate, again, is in this sort of 50-50 range. Um, I think most folks um, are really hoping for something better. If a patient decides to wait to treat their hepatitis C, um, I think it's really important to be aware um, of a couple of things that I try to review with everybody that I talk with who has hepatitis C. Hepatitis C can be transmitted not only through injection drugs, but I think um, we've very much come to understand that uh, it can be transmitted sexually. The majority of this data is for um, men who have sex with men, men who have sex with men, particularly um, if the uninfected partner has HIV. I think that lowers the barrier for that person to become infected. Um, so I think it's important to talk about safer sex um, in uh, men who have sex with men who have hepatitis C uh, infection. Certainly those who are injecting, talking about safe injection practices, and then some basic household precautions like not sharing razors, um, not sharing uh, uh, toothbrushes that uh, may have visible blood on them um, uh, because those can be associated with hepatitis C transmission. Uh, for patients who have known cirrhosis, we need to screen them for hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, we usually will do that for, with yearly imaging. We have to look for things like varices and then talk about liver transplantation early in the course because that is a possibility for folks if um, their disease does progress. Um, and I think it's just important to understand what all the options are that are out there on the table and what barriers may be to getting a liver transplant. Some people don't realize, gosh, if I smoke, I can't get a liver transplant. Um, that's something to, to talk to people about because many of the transplant services want you to not be smoking for six months, um, and that's hard to do uh, to get that under someone's belt. So that's work that, that should be started early. And then I, 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 I can't help but mention, I think, at this point, the importance of considering hepatitis um, C clinical trials because that's how to get access to these drugs now. Um, they're out there. There are strengths and limitations to hepatitis C clinical trials as to all clinical trials, but I think it's a really important thing uh, for us to consider. This is a way to get access to these new agents now. Um, it's a way to access treatment-shortening strategies. Many of these studies not only have newer and potentially more potent agents, but being given in a shorter time period. 
access to interferon sparing therapy, removing one of the main toxicities there. And oftentimes the medication and all of the monitoring is provided free of charge. And that's not a small thing um, because Bisepravir and Tilaprevir are FDA approved does not mean they're easy to get um, from insurance. And they're not FDA approved for HIV, even though we have a lot of data to support their use. Um, So when medications aren't FDA approved, it makes it a lot harder to get insurance to pay for them. I think we need to consider, though, um, uh, for folks as they think about uh, clinical trials, um, many of these clinical trials still require a liver biopsy before enrollment, and it's not always required to be treated through a regular clinic to get a liver biopsy. There's reasons to do one, but it's certainly not required. Um, But some studies will require that. A liver biopsy is a very benign procedure, um, but it may be an additional hoop that, that individuals have to jump through. Clinical trials aren't available everywhere. So certainly limited by geography and the open studies that are available. The exclusionary criteria can be more restrictive. So if your platelets are, you know, one point below where they need to be, that can be challenging. Um, And certainly for people who have other infections like hepatitis B who are maybe on exclusionary medications, uh, it can be hard to access these trials. They often focus on genotype 1. I think in general that's a good thing because that's the most difficult to treat genotype, and it's not been neglected because it's the most common. Um, But for people who may be genotype 2, 3, or 4, these studies are a little bit harder to access. And finally, I think that anybody who's considering a clinical trial, particularly in the hepatitis C world, needs to really think about what the control arm is. I showed you some studies where they did have a control arm of pegylated interferon and ribavirin. I think studies now are increasingly moving away from that, but people need to understand what they might get if they're randomized, and if there's a potential for that to be what's considered standard of care therapy, that may be less attractive to them. It it may be reasonably attractive to them. There is definitely a time and a place for a standard of care arm in clinical trials. Um, But I think the really important thing is to know what the possibility is when a person is signing up for a randomized trial. I hope I've convinced you that this is really just an incredibly exciting time for hepatitis C treatment. It is hard to keep up, but that's a sign that things are moving forward well. And then I think uh, interferon sparing therapies are coming, um, but I think they're unlikely to be a reality, uh, certainly within the next year, which raises important questions for us now about who to treat and how how we can responsibly wait. Um, And this may be even more complicated for our folks with HIV and hepatitis C. So thanks so much, and hopefully I have time for a few more questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.